Pacific Overtures, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, and a book by John Weidman, opened at the Winter Garden Theater January 11, 1976. Featuring an ambitious and sophisticated musical score, the show is set in Japan beginning in 1853 and follows the traumatic westernization of the country after 250 years of isolation. Told from the point of view of the Japanese, the story focuses on two friends caught in the change brought on by these political moves. Nippon! The floating kingdom! An island empire which for centuries has lived in perfect peace undisturbed by intruders from across the sea. Here in the month of July, 1853, there is nothing to threaten the serene and changeless cycle of our day. Today is composer, lyricist, and actor Amanda Green, whose work on Broadway includes writing lyrics for the musicals High Fidelity and Bring It On, contributing additional lyrics for the recent revivals of Kiss Me Kate and On the 20th Century, and writing lyrics and music with Trey Anastasio for Hands on a Hard Body, for which she was nominated for the 2013 Tony Award for Best Original Score. Actor, singer, and songwriter Telly Leung whose extensive work on stage and screen include Broadway appearances in Rent, Flower Drum Song, Godspell, Aladdin, Allegiance, In Transit, and Pacific Overtures, which was nominated for the 2005 Tony Award for Best Revival. And Richard Manera, whose work in opera and music theater internationally includes appearances in Children and Art, a celebration of Stephen Sondheim's 75th birthday, Sweeney Todd, numerous productions of West Side Story and Pacific Overtures, both at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, where it received the 2002 Jeff Award as Best Production, later transferring to London's Don Mar Warehouse, where it received the 2004 Olivier Award for Outstanding Production. Welcome, everyone to the round table. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to talk about this show with you all. Uh, I like to start at the beginning, you know, where um, the show first came into your lives. For me, it was a production here in Chicago at a small company uh, called uh, Pegasus Players. I saw it probably when I was about 20 years old and had no idea what this is, was, I should say, when I walked in the door. And I think I was the right age and had the right just sort of openness to have my mind blown by what the story was, what this moment in history was that I had no idea about, and to be totally taken by a production which 
absolutely had me in hand and, and was an incredible uh, just discovery of, of this amazing and unique piece of art. What for each of you was the first time you encountered Pacific Overtures? I'll, I'll start. Sure. Uh, for me, it was college. I went to college at Carnegie Mellon University and I was at Carnegie Mellon every Thursdays. There's a class called Voice Lab where every all the music theater majors all gather on a Thursday afternoon and sing in rotation for each other. And sometimes pe people will get up and they've worked on duets or trios together and they'll be able to get up and showcase that. And the first time I heard anything from Pacific Overtures was Pretty Lady. It was a trio of oh, men no. singing Pretty Lady and singing it beautifully. And it mm -hmm. wasn't until they, I said, oh, what is that? Oh, that's Sondheim, how interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and then as I started to find out what the song was really about, I said, oh gosh, what, a, what an interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very Sondheim. <laughs> yeah, you're like, beautiful. oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, so, so beautiful, I've been lulled yeah. into this yeah. gorgeous, this round and this melody. And I go, oh wait, what's it about? No, that's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anybody else? Uh, I'll well, oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Amanda. Are you sure? Okay. Um, I will. I my dad brought me the album when I was uh, twelve, and uh, you know he's my dad was in the theater, uh, Adolf Green, and um, he brought me this album, and I heard Chrysanthemum Tea, and that was. I mean, I I honestly from the album, being twelve, I didn't really understand what was going on, but I understood the situation in the song. And it blew my mind. I mean, I, and then I played the whole album again and again and again and again, you know, the way some people, you know, would whatever, any, anything, but just, I was obsessed. And, and I think even though my dad was a lyricist, obviously, and I grew up with that, hearing, hearing those rhymes and the way it was fit into the situation, I think that really made me want to be a lyricist. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then he, uh, they brought me to the Broadway production. Um, and uh, I, my mind was blown again. I have to say, as a 12 year old, I was a little bored at times. <laughs> it was a little restive for me. It was big. I mean, um, my appreciation has, has only grown for it over the years. And I've seen, uh, I think every production that's been in New York, um, and I, I just watched it again this, this morning because you, you helpfully sent us the link to the original production. My mind was blown all over again, yeah. all over again, the whole production. Okay, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, it was, a, it was a workshop of it. I was doing a production of uh, West Side Story and they wanted to do the uh, workshop of Pacific Overtures to see if it was possible to do it with the 10 men. Uh, so I had these two shows going at the same time and everything was just over my head so fast. But it was so incredible watching how we could tell that story so simply in that reading that uh, that's when I got hooked. I got hooked and then um, doing the production um, in that way, which is which was very much a Chicago production, mm -hmm. uh, if I can say that. Uh, uh, that just, it just has a special place for me in my heart. So yeah, that's, that's for me. With so many people that I talk to who, who are familiar with the show and have been affected by the show, you, you, as Amanda says, mind blown. There's something about the audacity of this piece of theater that was a Broadway musical playing at the Winter Garden that at the time in, in Sondheim's 
journey. This came after the frogs, of which you're going, oh, again, the you know, the <laughs> well, and then going yeah. into Sweeney Todd, yes. which, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is so amazing to me that there was th this period um, where you had people attempting theater like this that wasn't immediately being geared towards the tourists. What's immediately, you know, going to, to appeal to the tourist trade? Which is, it's pretty astonishing to think that that's what they, they uh, attempted to go, yeah, we're going to do this. You know, I can't think of other, of other shows that um, had that kind of bravery, um, a lot of them at least, and, and, and uh, been able to still be around as much as this show was. It has continued to be part of the, the canon and gets done again and again and again. Well, that's Sondheim too. I mean, he's hardly, he's, he goes to his own drummer in Sondheim and Hal Prince too. I mean, they, they rarely were going for the easy sell, whatever that is, mm -hmm. you know. Right. What do you guys? And, and, and the, the particular um, lens of this show, I think is so important because of the fact that at least from the original production and with so many Sondheim and Hal Prince collaborations, many times the original approach that they took is not what has been done since um, in terms of very strictly that large scale and, and kabuki foundation and on an all male cast. It seemed to be very quickly after that they began to rethink the show by incorporating um, female identifying actors with into it very quickly. Uh, Telly and Richard, in the productions that you appeared, uh, was, was there much discussion or did you do research to the way the original production was approached in, in contrast to what you were attempting to do? I remember going to Lincoln Center and go, watching the archive of it um, when I realized that I had to audition for the show. And granted, I was cast in the show almost a year before the actual production at Roundabout. And it was because the director that they wanted to work on the show was this, is this remarkable director from Japan. His name is Amon Miyamoto. He's actually the first Asian person to ever direct a musical on Broadway wow. was that production of Pacific Overtures. And he had done a production in Japan with Japanese actors, sung in Japanese, in, with a Japanese translation that was then brought over to Lincoln Center for a very limited run at I saw that. Hall. Yeah. And then, um, and then Steve and, and, and John Weidman said, that's it. That's what we, as me and John Wyman and Hal Prince were trying to tell a Japanese story through, through Japanese eyes and through a Japanese lens of kabuki theater. Now we actually have a Japanese director to sort of complete what our original intention was back in 1976. We, we did it as far as we possibly could. We, we learned as much Japanese culture as we possibly could. But they said what we really aimed to do was tell this through Japanese eyes, tell it through these two men. And, and, their, and their Japanese perspective. And they said what completed their vision was somebody like Amon, mm -hmm. who had lived as a, as a Japanese man and, lived with, and was really able to filter it through his perspective. So um, it, was, it was a, for me, I always felt like that was their mission. And I know that they were very, they were ha really thrilled with that production. Streets are boring, yes. boring, thrilling, keep it boring, yes. Thunder, just a murmur, a little wonder. Next, then the wonder, see how pretty, going under, call a pity. Next, see the fire, 
Ramon Miyamoto said, I'd like you to sing this standing on your head and, and you know, um, and barking like a dog because it's Japanese. We said, yes, okay, we, we, we just went with him. And I think the, our whole production did. We, we, we followed this fearless leader because he gave, he gave it sort of an authenticity that I think they had always been aiming for since 1976. Mm -hmm. I, and I think for, for our production, um, we had uh, Barb Robertson, who is... Uh, a muse for Shozo Sato because she did all of the uh, Kabuki Medea and all of that. Um, and she came in and taught us um, a lot of the movement and a lot of um, the culture. Uh, and her, her technique in doing all Kabuki theater was uh, so that we as actors could sort of embody uh, the piece. Um, and to um, show as much culture as we could get from her through Shozo. Uh, and I, I like to use a phrase that um, she, she said, um, when the technique that we will be using is, um, it, it's, it's all encompassing of Kabuki, but it's, it's just the soy sauce. It's just to taste. That's not the... Uh, uh, it's not the main driver of the show, but um, it's just, again, it's just a taste and the, the main meal would be the show itself. So uh, I think that's our, that was our approach to it mm -hmm. for that. It's uh, the structure of it, um, going back and, and, and rereading it and watching uh, a number of other uh, adaptations or, or approaches to it um, is so interesting to me because it has an almost an episodic approach. Each of the songs and each of the scenes is almost its own little three-act play. They're so complete and so thoroughly detailed in terms of even from the introduction um, floating in the middle of the sea that, that introduces an entire country and culture and hierarchy it's it's quite astonishing um how it was uh, uh, how it's assembled you know in, in that in that sense
we float. I saw it at CSC that the most with uh, George Takei, and um, I mean it was ninety minutes long, which was a huge change. And um, and they didn't have chrysanthemum tea. When I heard that, I was outraged. But um, it it does it does it does work without chrysanthemum tea, but because of that episodic nature. And I'd forgotten. I think that was the last production I saw. And watching it this morning, I was like, this is a long show. <laughs> There's a lot of episodes. Uh, in it. So I agree that it is episodic, but oh my God, what a score. And, mm -hmm. and the book is so ambitious. It's like a Dickens novel. You know what I mean? It's against the backdrop of this history and, and Japan and then these two men and how they represent it. It's really, when you talk about ambitious, that's, no. that's incredibly ambitious storytelling. I think because it is so epic. I mean, we're going we're gonna to talk about American imperialism in the East. So, I mean, basically is what they were trying to tackle in, yeah. you know, a, a, a musical under three hours on Broadway. And I think, I think the only way to tackle it is in pieces. You know, I mean, I think, I think in a way, and, and I, I think that's why I think Someone in a Tree resonates too, because he goes, it's impossible for us to tell this story in any sort of linear way because it is so epic. However, if I tell you this story through just sound, or if I tell you this story just through this madam's eyes as, as how she perceives it, or if I just tell you through this storyteller that comes in the second act that we, we've never seen but, and we'll never see again, but that's how he's interpreting history, somehow you get the whole picture. I mean, in, a, in some ways it's sort of the predecessor to, you know, Sunday in the Park where you go the little, the little dots all, all, also make a big picture, but I think, in, in a lot of ways, I think that's what they were going for. And I also think that the episodic nature of it and the length of it, I didn't understand. When I was working on it in 2004, 2005, I was 24. It wasn't until this last fall that I was in Tokyo. I was working on uh, a big concert production of Jesus Christ Superstar. And uh, what happened was there is this guy, his name is Toyoshige Imai. He's like, a, I didn't know this at the time, but he's a very famous kabuki writer. He is still writing kabuki theater for the kabukiza in Ginza in Japan. And he's also a huge Broadway fanatic. So he said, anybody who wants to come see kabuki theater, you're invited to come. I will get you a free ticket. We had his house seats. He, and I had to be prepared a little bit. He was like, here's the libretto. It's three and a half hour. It's a three and a half hour to four hour experience. There are two 40 minute intermissions <laughs> in that time. There is food served there. Like it is a whole experience. And all of a sudden you go there and you realize, oh, time isn't the same. Their, their sense of theater time and our sense of going, all right, keep up the pace, let's go, bigger, faster, funnier, let's get to the song, does not exist. And I wonder if that's what the three of them, after seeing some kabuki, were playing with too, that Hal and, and John Weidman and Sondheim were like, you know what, I know we, we worked on Gypsy and West Side Story and all these shows that sort of define what the structure of musical theater is, but what if we adopted that rhythm which is that we're gonna, we're gonna spend a lot of time on just one moment and it doesn't forward any story, but we're, that's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna sit here in this, you know? Yeah, that, that's, that's such a great point in terms of going back and watching it. It is a, you, you have to almost bring yourself to it. I have, I have so enjoyed, and we're so lucky to have that recording that, that um, Amanda, that you mentioned that I sent out to you of the original Broadway show, to go back and watch it again and again and just sit there like this because you can just marinate in this show. I There's don't know. so much artistry on that stage on so many different levels. It's, yeah, I, it, I agree. And I also love what you said too. It's true. I mean, the way it's written, I mean, 
you have the fishermen talking about four black dragons, but so it, you hear from, it from so many different perspectives. Right. It's not one person and, you know, they come forward and sing their want song and that, you know, I mean, there's, you know, Layman Engel was not harmed in the making of that musical, <laughs> you know, I, which is something I love about it too. It's just so um, rich, rich. And everybody was on their A game. I mean, Patricia Birch, nobody, oh. nobody was Japanese, but her work is sterling in that. Wow, I was just blown away. And the puppetry and the, oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Telly, in your production, because I, I wasn't fortunate enough to see it, uh, did you stick to the, um, the, the conceit of all men, male identifying actors playing the roles or? We had several women in the show um, and actually, uh, for example, Tamate, who's Kayama's wife, that was played by a woman. We actually sometimes had women play men. So um, we sometimes had little, little Yuka Takara. She was often a woman in the show, but then she, all of a sudden she was also a little boy in the show. So we also did a lot of, a lot of gender flipping both ways. Um, and uh, no, but we didn't stick to the original conceit of Kabuki, which is that it's all, which is that it's all men. And I think that has opened up as far as no theater goes. I think like, I'm not sure, but I, I, I feel like that was part of Amon's vision was that, oh, it, it wasn't all Kabuki. He more styled it towards no, which is less about the bold colors and the geometric shapes, and the, which is what we see in the 1976 production. No is much more, uh, it's, 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 it's natural. You know, that, that's why our stage was all wood, you know, and it was, and there was, it's, it's the, the greens weren't like bright, bold greens, but they were sort of like a bamboo green. Like it was so, the, even the colors were, were in a way muted and, 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 and not as dynamic and bold in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Richard, your production was also much more diverse in its... It, it was, it was much more diverse. It was, it, we did stick with all men. It was all male, 10 men. Um, so we also played the women in the show, but um, we, it wasn't an all Asian or Japanese cast. We had, um, we had Caucasians in there, uh, a black, a black person, a black actor, sorry. And um, yeah, and I think the majority, uh, I think, it, I think the racial was half and half. And then when we went to when we went to London, uh, I think it was the same again. It was maybe two thirds Asian and a few uh, a black and Caucasians in there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, it it makes it's funny because it makes it sort of made a difference in Please Hello to actually have uh, a, a we had a Frenchman and we had a a Brit in in the show, so for them to sing um, Please Hello, and coming from their, that perspective, you, you were like, oh, that's really not great. It, it's yeah. a funny number, but it's like, that's really not great what you're doing, yeah. Aggressive and, and yeah. dangerous and gross, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think it opened up a lot of things in that respect too. And I think in the context of the show, um, the first time we did the show, it was um, a month after 9-11. So the show was sort of a unifying show. Um, 
And then when we went to London, I think 2004, 2005, it was um, right about the Iraq war. So then it became sort of much more political and sort of imperialism, colonialism. And it was uh, two different, two different times, two different perspectives. And it was, it was, it was really odd. Um, I, it, it was really, um, I didn't know how um, the Brits would, would take the show. Um, they loved it, uh, um, but it was really odd how the perspective had changed from that during the show. It's amazing the, the power that the piece holds to evolve and speak to the moment, even in its very um, historically accurate, in the sense of what John Weidman was, who was a student of, of the culture and wanted to make great efforts to be accurate in terms of the historical storytelling and that so many Hal Prince says I had no idea about Admiral Perry or any of this episode we just take we think that everything just magically happened you know in terms of how the how the planet began to connect with each other we don't sometimes think okay how, how what was the first day that one group of people met another group of people and encountered them and how did that go um, it's, it's amazing that, that you, you take that and then you, you kind of elevate it and contextualize it and then throw it through an interesting other kind of a lens, what they were able to accomplish. Um, and then you can still, as we're saying, the show has been rethought many times since that original production to be larger or smaller or more opulent or more lean. Um, right. and is there another show and I don't know, I mean, about it from, from you know, in terms of Sondheim's actual um, proactive approach that says less is more, less is more. It's so impressive to me how lean the show is. That doesn't require, it's not asking for an enormous production. It's just, it's giving well, it's me- It's like you look it up on Wikipedia, which is how I get all my information. No, but I, I'd forgotten about the original production was like, in the last two minutes, 20 women have come on stage. I was like, well, that's not very budget friendly. Like, first of all, great, to a great part for 20 women to wait for two hours. And 18 minutes and then run on stage. <laughs> but so that's not very lean in me. <laughs> yes, of course. No, but the story, no, you're absolutely right. But yeah, no, I've forgotten that. It was so, yeah. Which I think is in keeping with the with the tradition of that of the Kabuki theater that they were yeah. trying to make this. And yeah. then, of course, the next show they come back with after this is Sweeney Todd, which was gargantuan. And and how Prince talked about you know on that show it was about more is more. I want I want a factory on stage. I want, and and this whole you know kind of a, a conceit. What were uh, Richard and Telly? What what were challenges? Um, as, as actors who've made, who's, who, uh, most of your career have been, had been doing sort of more Broadway-esque musicals and opera um, in terms of approaching a piece like this as actors. What, did, what were certain challenges that maybe were unique to getting into a show like this for yourselves? 
I, I will say this, that I, I feel very lucky that I had Amon as a guide because so much of the behavior of, of the show, of these characters, to me, as a New Yorker, born and, I mean, I'm, I'm a kid of Chinese immigrants, but I'm a born and raised New Yorker and also very American. So like, there are just things I didn't understand. Yeah. Like, what, what do you mean, what do you mean she, she kills her son the Shogun just so that he can't receive a letter? Like, I don't understand. Like, that doesn't make any sense. There has to be another way around this, right? Or wait a minute. So they, so they, they had this secret meeting with these people that they had to put the mats down and they just burned the mats. And why couldn't they just lie about it and not say that? The, why, did, why couldn't they just make sure nobody was watching? I mean, there were so many things that as an American, just the, the character's behavior that I went, I don't understand. And it didn't really make sense to me until I went to Japan for the very first time. And, and, and I had, and when you're, the first time I went to Japan was in 2009 and I did a production of Rent there. It was the Broadway tour that was the, basically it was Adam, Adam, uh, Anthony Rapp and Adam Pascal touring with a lot of the members of the final company. We, we did six, we did five weeks in Japan, I think that's what it was. Ah. And so we really got to live there and living there. It just, even modern day Japan, it blows your mind. You know, the, the thing that really blew, I remember when I was in Tokyo, I would see people riding their bikes and they would park their bike and they wouldn't lock their bikes. And I would go, well, I don't understand. They're not going to lock their bike. What if somebody steals their bike? And they go, well, why? Japanese would go, why would somebody steal that bike? It's not their bike. Why would they take it? Like the honor code. I also noticed there were no trash cans. Everybody kept their trash with them and would wait, and would wait to throw out their trash when they got home. There was no litter on the streets. I mean, just things that as a New Yorker, little things that blew my mind about how culturally different it was. And I, and I think in a lot of ways, they were trying to be as authentic to that as possible. Having, for, for those three guys who went to Japan to visit, I'm sure those same things blew their mind in the 70s too, that they went, okay, let's try, let's really try to, 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 to introduce a New York audience at the Winter Garden <laughs> to this other <laughs> way of thinking about life that is not Western, that is going to blow your mind. And that was hard for me as an actor. It was just hard for me to understand it. But thank God for Amon, you know, helping us. It's 1976. That time was I was a university's college student. Yeah, that's been in the... I saw on TV in Japan. That be looks beautiful. That's a little bit weird for Japanese because this is Kabuki style. The Kabuki style and the musical is mixed together. That is big. That time was a little bit strange for Japanese. But uh, I waiting, I waiting. I saw some Japanese director will do that. But uh, I don't know. Four years ago, nobody won't do that. And I decided, okay, I will go. I will try to that because this is Steven Sondheim and John Wildman's lyrics. So music and lyric and story so beautiful. Very touch my heart. Of course, outside the spectacular, but the inside, very deep, like a poem or some music, is a very calm or a silently, but very important something. And especially four years ago, when I decided I ha have to show to the Japanese audience, because we lost confidence and uh, we didn't know what is a Japanese. We that's been a way lost identity in that time was and so I made show for Japanese and to that point I think for our production I think Barb Robertson did a great job at trying to uh, give us all the physicality and 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 
all the the techniques that she she uses um so yeah i i know there's a lot of 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 research and everything that goes into um doing a show uh but with with our production she was it was literally hands on and cleaning the stage and um getting into uh getting into the right frame of mind in order to do this so um that's uh i you don't really get that a lot for a lot of um a lot of shows now uh especially shows that aren't so that um that aren't so uh focused on one culture i guess in that sense a lot of a lot of shows a lot of american shows don't have to have to embody a kind of culture because uh, you're there right we're here we're here in america so uh, yeah i i think like for you with aman um for me it was uh barb robertson or for our cast it was barb robertson yeah amanda as as a fellow lyricist when you kind of come up against a piece like this what what is what is the kind of thing that you pay attention to or 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 what impresses you or kind of just immediately grabs you as you have i mean obviously you said you saw it when you were younger but now where you have evolved to in your own career when you look at a piece like this as as a fellow colleague of sondheim's a colleague let's just say no <laughs> no but um how do I, um i mean i i honestly look at it with huge huge admiration and uh oh my god i mean um please hello is just you know one of the great theater songs of all times someone in a tree i mean i i just uh played that by the way i would like to say but i played i have uh, two stepkids and i played this for it was actually just in the car the cd when they were younger and their minds were blown and they immediately were like i gotta i i have to know about this history and they looked up you know started reading about the history and uh i have one step kid with me today and they were just singing along with the whole thing i mean it you know so it it continues but um the 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 sophistication of storytelling as i said it's not just like the i want song the terms of i mean someone in a tree is as other people have said, it's history. It's how history is told. And it's from so many different perspectives and it's so human. And then the sweep of it and um, um, the haiku, the, you know, back and forth is just... Um, Someone bangs a fist. Someone knocks. Now there was a pause. Then they argue it. What we want, no, you can't. And we won't, but we need it. And we want when you rant. If you don't, we concede it. And Not the ripple, not the sea, that is happening. Not the 
songs work on so many levels and they're so theatrically satisfying. I mean, when you think of that audience seeing Please Hello, you go, oh my God, you're so, you're so freaking lucky to be sitting there seeing it. I was there at 12 years old and didn't know how lucky I was, but I mean, it's, it's just, they're just masterpieces, masterpieces of, of songwriting and storytelling. And, and, you know, as a 12 year old, I love the fact that she was poisoning her, you know, her son, like that's just so messed up. It's very Grimm's fairy tale. It's like, what? Uh, and the rhymes were enough to draw me in and they still draw me in, you know, the tea, the Shogun drank will serve to keep the Shogun tranquil. You guys know, I mean, uh. it's still just, you know, it makes you tingle, but everything else that's going on, you know, that you see, you know, the story of her poisoning her son over four days, who goes like, that's a good idea for a song, let's do that. You know, so um, just a lot of admiration and, and it always makes me try to think bigger when I'm writing a song than just, um, you know, a, a good idea or a funny title or something, you know, it's such a challenge. Yes. And some I love, I love, I love chrysanthemum tea, uh, mainly because it's, it shows where the power shift really is. You think it's in the Shogun, but yeah. then it's really the mother who's mm -hmm. slowly poisoning the son in yeah. order to, in order for that country to survive yeah. what is about to come onto their land. So. I, I love Christopher. I mean, it's I, got layers. It's got layers. Yeah. As I started to say from that first disturbing day, when I gave consideration to this letter they convey, I decided if there weren't any shogun to receive it, it would act as a deterrent since they'd have no place to leave it, and they might go away, my lord. Do you see what I say, my lord? My lord. In the Chrysanthemum tea, an informal variation on the normal recipe. Though I know my planet merit, it was slow in execution. If there's one thing you inherit, it's your father's constitution, and you're taking so long, my lord. Do you think I was wrong, my lord? Now you must let me speak. When the shogun is weak, then the tea must be strong, my lord. My lord. What blows my mind is, you know, I, I was lucky enough to do the show with Alvin Ng, who was the original Shogun's mother, and then 30 oh, no. years later did the song again in the revival. So he no. reprised his role as the Shogun's mother 30 years later. And right. he would tell us the story of how that song was written out of town. So can you imagine wow. being in DC, <laughs> out of town, going, we no. need a song, right? Like we've all been in that, like working on new shows where you're no. like, Gosh, we, yeah. I need a new opening number. Well, yeah, this will do for now until we get to Broadway. Do you know what I mean like that's usually yeah. what happens? Here's yeah. Sondheim going, well, we need a new song, so I'm just going to write 
chrysanthemum tea. And apparently Alvin said, I had it's so many lyrics that, you know, he had he had them, he had like boards pasted. Behind the conductor, there were keywords that were on giant oak tag so that if he if he needed it, he would look down and be able to, just for those first couple of, because, you know, when you write a new song, you go, all right, how long does it take for us to put it in? You Then it's on the actor to go, all right, how long? How long is it going to take for me to memorize this? Epic. <laughs> Chrysanthemum T was originally a, a real ensemble number, and in it I originally did uh, The Physician. And then one day I was called to um, Stephen Sondheim's, and he said, We're changing the whole number. And then he played for me the, uh, Chrysanthemum T as it is now. And of course, with four verses, and I had to learn them in three days. It was a nightmare. I don't think I slept more than a couple of hours a night, and I really went kind of crazy. But um, fortunately, the mind is still a little there, so I still remember the words. And Sondheim has mentioned on more than one occasion that, that Someone in a Tree is his own personal favorite song. It's amazing to think that this is the show. Of everything he's written, it's that one song. And he talks about his, his particular challenges that seem unique in then to other shows that he had written. One being um, him wrestling with the humor of the, the, the song. Um, and and what, uh, what is the, the, the number with the, God, it's going out of my head, with the three gays. Welcome to Kanagawa. Welcome, Welcome to Kanagawa. Kanagawa. Talking how he kept rewriting and he's still, he's like, I'm open. I'm at a point where I'm open. If somebody's got a, a way for me to get this song to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> like always funny that you know that he's even still going i'm open to ideas you know yeah. um and that it is such a funny show you don't i mean j just and even in chrysanthemum tea it is it is laugh out loud it's funny hilarious i i was teaching hilarious. a class this week on comedy writing and i play chrysanthemum tea you know i mean because yeah. it's uh yeah because it's because it, it it draws on the the human um, desire to look for patterns, I think. So many of the songs have, they unfold in a pattern and then they keep going back and revisiting the journey again, but there's something different, there's something new, something is evolved. So that at the conclusion, and we don't see that Shogun or his mother really again, but you walk out of that one number and you completely understand not only their relationship, but his, his uh, soothsayer and his and his wrestlers and how the entire household works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Drawing you back yeah. to being little one act plays. Yeah, uh, it's I, that it's that power shift again. Mm -hmm. It's totally that power shift in there. Mm -hmm. um, the the soothsayer has a little bit of power by giving him a good uh, reading exactly. or the priest the same way. But if you don't and they're still there, those ships are still there, you die. Mm -hmm. So there, there's, there's high stakes in it. It's, mm -hmm. it's, all, it's, it's all funny. It's all funny, but there's some really deep, deep, dark, scary things that are happening. And that's what makes it even funnier, funnier. because it's so yeah. real. The stakes are so real, you know. Same thing with, yeah. with Kanagawa, right? For those women, it's, it's survival. You've got to learn how to survive with these new people coming in. And if you don't, then you, you go away. There's, there's, no, there's no job. 
you know, mm-hmm. she, she can't be a madam anymore. Or you as a, a courtesan or a geisha girl, uh, you die because you don't have a job. So. Don't be shy, girls. We have customers. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that for a show, at least in its original production, that was being staged and and emphasizing this male dominance in terms of the performance tradition, the characters of the women are so thoroughly detailed and strong that the shogun's mother is really the strongest person and the smartest person in that room. That you get this, you really do understand how in the culture, while there is this sort of masculine dominance that they try to project, underneath there really is a very big influence in terms of how decisions are being made and the story is being told because of what the female I think Sondheim uh, uh, modeled her after his own mother. Wow. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I just made that up. But he doesn't have nice things to say about her. <laughs> um, but and I, I, taking on that, I mean, it is all, all male. But the men also, when they're playing women, are so beautiful. And so uh, in that 76 production, I was like, wow. They're just absolutely beautiful and, and played with such, you know, I don't know, respect, restraint. I don't know. You know, I, I feel well, no burlesque about it. There was there was no, no. oh, I'm Except in women. The, uh, the courtesan in, in uh, <laughs> Chrysanthemum Tea. But um, but the, the woman in, in, in Pretty Lady is just uh, the man playing. See, I even said woman because you absolutely feel like it's a woman. It, you right. absolutely feel like it's a woman. It's, I mean, yeah. and, and, and then the tradition of Kabuki, you know, when, when my friend Shige brought me, he brought me backstage. I met several actors that were at the Kabuki-sa. And first of all, three and a half hours, four hours of theater. And I was not, I was riveted for three and a half and four hours. Of theater. And part of it is the, the male actors that are playing women they are superstars. That is all they do. They have trained since they were little kids to play the female parts. And they have, and they, it's almost like Shakespeare in a way that they've collected these roles for themselves, that that is part of their repertoire. And if that show is in the season, that's the person that is selling tickets because that's the actor that has famously played whatever mm-hmm. that female character is. I mean, they've built it. And probably their father before that played that same character. I mean, it's been passed down. So. And, and it's it's it is quite beautiful, and you do forget when you watch. You just you. But isn't that all theater? You know, I think that's what Kabuki yeah. does so brilliantly. Is they go, you know, you we see the trap door. The actor is going to fall through this trap door, which means they're drowning in the water. We hear the door open. We see that, but it's still magic. Somehow we still buy it and we believe it, and I'll take it. You know. And at the center of this incredibly theatrical political, historical story show is this incredibly 
heart-wrenching relationship between these two men, between uh, 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 Kayama and Manjiro, in term, the, the fisherman and the sort of minor uh, samurai who's been very politically quickly elevated to be the scapegoat to mm -hmm. take on this incredible burden of making the, the warships go away. And you immediately become connected to this relationship of these two uh, men who are small within the grand scheme of things and they're at the center of it and how this relationship has such a beautiful evolution. Mm. Yeah. By the end, and your heart is breaking when you get to Bowler Hat and you see them going further and further and further and further away from, you watch the, the just dissolving. Watch them just cross and go away. I've left my wife. No bird exploring in the sky explores as well as I the goddess of my life. One must keep moving with the times. The Dutch ambassador is a fool. He wears a bowler hat. My lord, here in Uraga, we have reached an understanding with the Westerners. Of course, I wish them gone, but I shall try to turn their presence into an advantage rather than a burden. Last week, I joined them in a fox hunt. The golden spectacles. I drink much wine. I take imported pills. I have a house up in the hills. I've hired British architects to redesign. One must accommodate the times as one lives them. One must remember that. Your humble servant, Kayama Yazaemon. It's called a cutaway. That relationship resonates to me differently now, having kind of, you know, thought about the show again for this discussion. I hadn't thought about the show, gosh, since 2005. Mm -hmm. So it's been, a, it's been 15 years. And so revisiting the show in the middle of a pandemic while we're going through what we're going through politically in this country, you know, it's to me, those two men represent sort of what's happening now. We've had this event happen and you're going to, there's people that are going to be dealing with it in very different ways. Some people are going to want to hold on to their past and hold on to what was and hold on to what was normal, what life was. And there are some people that are going to go, I have to pivot and I have to evolve or I will perish in this new normal. So I feel like in a lot of ways, the, those characters still re they still resonate to me now and th probably even more so because because it's it, it is it's just it's just human nature it's how we it's how we adapt and it's it's polar opposites of how of how we can adapt i mm -hmm. i sort of see it through that lens now you know yeah. the show is still timely in a lot of ways yeah. 
Also in the cynical way that small people and people not in power are used by people in power and they're swept into this and you find, you see their little stories totally beyond their control. This poor fisherman who, you know, all of a sudden is like, you have to defeat that monolithic power or you're going to die. You know, um, he's like, what, 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 you know? Um, and then this sailor who was completely unfairly, uh, you know, in that way, it sort of has a Sweeney Todd aspect of it because Sweeney Todd was a pawn, a victim of his society. And these two men are too. They're absolute pawns of these great powers, you know, who just, they're swept along, they're used, they're, you know, and they, they go to, the two men diverge, you know, one all of a sudden becomes, you know, aligns himself with the enemy or whatever, they're so close, it's, he can't even tell anymore where they end and he begins, and the other one, you know, goes back and reclaims his, his nationality, you know. Mm -hmm. so and so much of the story, again, a device in the show who, and, and we connect so much that this has a narrator. The character of the reciter being your intermediary to take you along and sometimes step in and sometimes step out and, and comment. And, and Telly, to, to your point, which is so, was so beautifully put on how this resonates again today, we search for these connective tissues and the last line, which Sondheim again mentions how proud he was of the last line of Four Black Dragons. He thought it was the end of the world. And it was. That we don't know at any given moment when is the end of our world as we know it. And we're in another one of those moments. Something has changed. It was the end of what we knew. Oh, yes, it was. We were not, you weren't fooled by, by that change. Um, but what a great. Uh, the reciter, what a what a wonderful in character that you're going. It's he's not just a, um, a, a, a an intermediary. You fall in love with him, with everything that that he's there to to do for you in terms of his investment in the story. You know. Yeah, I think for you know for those guys writing a show in the '70s, I I bet you they were like are people going to get this thing? So like for them, they were like, we have to give the audience a friend to, we have to give the audience somebody who's going to be like, and somebody strong who's going to be like, it's going to be okay. I know this feels crazy, but I, I'm going to take you along. You're going to be fine. You're going to understand everything. And if you don't, I'll explain it in a haiku. You'll be all right. You know what I mean? Like, like I feel like, he, I feel like they knew. I think in, in some ways they were like, how are we going to tell this story and have, you know, this New York audience, a, 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 an American audience really under, understand this world, you know? And so I think they, they were like, we need somebody. We need, we, need some, we need some help. We need somebody to break that fourth wall and help us. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think, uh, I think Joe Ferranda, who was our, 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 our narrator, he, um, he, he is the, the glue that holds everything together. And takes you on that arc um, uh, and to see how all of this just unfolds, just keeps on unfolding and unfolding until the very end. And then he strips off all of that garb and then becomes or has shown that he has assimilated. It's, it's just remarkable how you watch him stay in that tradition until the very end. Kind of like how 
Japan was opened up to to Western traditions, everything was very fast. So you get next, and it's next, and everything is just coming right at you so fast. And they've done it so well that they've surpassed anything that we have done, bringing bringing whatever we had into into their culture faster. Faster trains, cleaner, cleaner everything, clean, clean streets, clean subways. It's amazing, and in and in a way, kind of heartbreaking because mm -hmm. it's that that sort of thing about well, just because you can do it, should you do it? There was a time when foreigners were not welcome here. But that was long ago, a hundred and twenty years. Welcome to Japan. I just thought of something that I, I didn't really dawn on me until right now when we were talking about the reciter, is that I wonder how much Hal Prince was like talking about that arc of somebody who sort of knows the beginning and the end of the story and at the end reveals underneath. I was like, I wonder how much MC in the cabaret was like a little bit borrowed in that way too, because it's sort of so similar. It just, I was like, I wonder how much Hal Prince was like, you know what worked in that show? <laughs> we can, we can, we're going to bring an MC in here to, and then at the end reveal he's known the beginning of the story and the end of the story and zip and here this is you know what I mean like yeah. it's, it's I, I, it didn't, I didn't really think about that till, till, till you were talking about that right now Richard that's such a great point I, yeah I, it never yeah. occurred to me either as we've been I know as we've as we've been doing these Sondheim conversations you know there are different things that that have been brought to my attention by different people contributing in terms of similarities of devices that Sondheim has, has gone opening numbers that introduce a, you know, a full community, things like that. But, but that, that is something that you also realize when you go back to the, to how shows original pieces and, and, and Amanda, you can certainly speak to this, how all of the collaborators, and in this particular case, certainly how Prince, yeah. And this being really at, at one of the heights of their relationship, the last thing they had done together was was Little Night Music, you know, which was such a colossal commercial hit. And they must have felt so empowered to yeah. go, now we're going to come back with this. But uh, it, it is truly a... a, a it, 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 it's a collaboration. You know I, about the collaboration. Yeah. I know with them and I know how... I mean, I don't... I mean how Prince was, um, he was, I mean, they, their collaboration was so, so creative. It wasn't like, it, he didn't stage it. I mean, I, they were together from the inception to the, to the thing. I mean, I know um, I've heard some incredible stories about their relationship with like a little night music and um, Hal going like, we need a song about them going to the country. And he basically, he just started staging the song without a number and he was like, we need a song here, Steve, you know, and he said, I'm going to stage the number and then you do the song. But you know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of mind he has, which is like, you know what I mean? He's just like, this is so, 
they're absolutely, and John Weidman, I'm sure the three of them, you know, collaborated about all this stuff. And it's interesting to think, you know, this, this was really supposed, there was supposed to be a play. Uh, Weidman and, and, and Hal Prince were doing a play of this. This was not a musical. And they, have, they were very deep into the process. And at some point, quite into their process, Prince had called Weidman into his office and sat him down. And he said, I've been thinking about this. This isn't a play. It's a musical. To which Weidman kind of said, isn't it a little late in our development? We've been working on this for so long. And he said, but I want Steve Sondheim to write the music and lyrics. To which Wyburn was like, oh, you have my attention, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, John, he was, he was in his 20s, right? He was a young man. It was, this was his first show. It was originally written as a straight, realistic, naturalistic, um, I suppose, familiar kind of historical drama. And um, even then, in the early stages of preparing it as a straight play, I was talking to Hal Prince about it uh, constantly, and we were working it over, and he came very close to producing it in that form. But... Uh, as we talked about it, as we discussed it, we both felt that it needed to be opened up and given the kind of feeling that it could only have if it were a musical. What he was bringing to it was his uh, deep, um, uh, educated uh, experience of studying Japanese culture. That was really what he was about, was somebody who was, who was really more writing, uh, uh, trying to do uh, bring uh, the emerging of a Broadway play and kabuki um, to something that could be commercial. But again, you talk about somebody like Hal Prince, who's, whose lens is so much of a different level of experience bringing to that collaboration and going, no, 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 I think this is something more than what your single vision is, what this could be. It could be something so much more. And, and uh, by bringing it, making it musical, it will open up all of these other wonderful avenues of the traditions of that kind of theater by bringing in music to show this where this could, uh, could, could incredibly go. And it certainly did. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to, um, you know, maybe let's wrap it up with, with, with this question. I, I like to kind of think if, if you know somebody who is, says, I've got tickets to this show called Pacific Overtures that I'm saying, I don't know anything about what I'm gonna to experience tonight. What do you know about it? What, what, what can I expect? What do you tell them? They're about to go see Pacific Overtures. What, what can they expect to experience? It's better than cats. No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's very witty. Uh, and and you'll, you'll learn a lot. Mm-hmm. I guess I would say if, if, if you thought you were going to see a show like Gypsy or West Side Story, A Little Night Music, this isn't it. But you will get a very full theatrical experience and feel like you got on a plane and went somewhere else for mm. two and a half hours. Yeah. It, it, I, I would, that, yes, and I would add to that, that it, like, it gets you that rare window into a world, which is what theater is like when it's so powerful, when you go you get to go inside and um, and feel like you know what life was like for the kid in the tree and the, and the fishermen and the, these two men who are caught up in this, you know, huge historical moment. Um, and, and Sondheim at his, at his height, you know, um, 
right before Sweeney Todd. I mean, this is for, I mean, we're playing insider baseball here, but um, a brilliant, brilliant, um, brilliant songs, brilliant, a brilliant story. And uh, a, right, a glimpse into a, a part of history that uh, most of us, I certainly I knew nothing about. You'll, and you'll it made, it made possible, I think, because those three guys, those three Caucasian guys, like American guys, really did their homework. They you know? super did. And, that's, and I think that's why the show works as well as it does, because you, uh, you forget, I mean, I, I forget. I'm like, oh, this is an American musical. That's right. There's three Americans who wrote this thing mm -hmm. because their goal, they, they accomplished what they wanted to do so well, which was really tell it through Japanese eyes. But they really, really did their homework in order to do that. And I, when, and it's, when people it's say, can you, can you write outside of, you know, people are asking that also, can I write about characters who aren't me, you know, especially in this, I mean, yes, if you really do your frickin' homework and you really know, I mean, I get, you know, and, and as you said, the last piece of the puzzle is a, a Japanese director, of course, uh, is, will really add authenticity and a Japanese choreographer and a Japanese everything. But uh, in their time, I just feel a lot of respect and a lot of knowledge and a breadth of artistry. Yeah. It was an incredible moment in the journey of music theater in America when this happened. And where we are now, there's been such a, an important evolution too about who needs to tell this story and, and how much more rich it is when you're bringing to the table the people who should tell the story and what a, a piece like this can be and, and needs to be and can be. And it still has an incredible power that uh, was only just cracked at in that very first production, but continues to offer anybody who wants to approach it. And I would say, go see that that original production, though, it is yeah. just gorgeous. Yeah, it's I mean, a gift that it was captured. Fun and for it was free. captured for Japanese television back in, in 1976. That's what, that was the purpose that it was captured so that they could share it with that community and have them see it and enjoy it too and own it, you know. What a wonderful uh, time with all of you. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I learned so much from you all today. And uh, I hope you have a, a great rest of your weekend, everybody. Thank you for, for coming. Thanks. Thank you so much. I love being here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, guys.